Hey, good morning, everybody. We uh, exist as a church to be conformed to the image, the life and mission of Jesus Christ. That's it. We're all about God's presence and his present man, uh, presence manifested by the power of the Holy Spirit and what that would do to us when we gather in the midst of it. And one of the things that we love to do, one of the primary things that we love to do is to open up his word together and to let him speak. We believe that God speaks and he speaks loud and hard to his people and it's always good. And so uh, we've been, if you are visiting or uh, this is your first time, uh, we have for, I think, a little over a month, been going through a series called Walking with Kings, where we've been going through First Samuel 24, looking at the lives of a couple kings, Saul and King David, uh, and specifically about God's forming of character in them, his calling and choosing in their lives. And what we've been doing in that series is actually, I've been uh, kicking back, and Tim Chaddock, who who, uh, Ryan was just talking about planning a church in London, has been teaching from Carpinteria and Ventura Campus, and we as well have been a part of that through video to kind of fasten our hearts uh, to the Chaddock family, and more importantly, to uh, God's purpose in London, uh, our passion and heart for church planning, and just to fasten ourselves to that, to something bigger uh, than what is, uh, what's going on uh, in Santa Barbara. That's been the purpose of that, and I, I trust and hope that that's been really good. Tim uh, has been out of town, and so I'm covering for him this week. Uh, But we are continuing in that series, Walking with Kings, specifically speaking about the crafting of character. So if you would, uh, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1 through 22. It's been really sweet to sit under the word of God for about a month and a little longer after this, but I, I also feel like I've been locked in an apartment drinking coffee all day. So... Pardon me if I get a little feisty. I'm not mad. I'm just excited. That's what I tell my daughter. I'm not mad. I'm just excited. First Samuel 24, verse 1 through 22. As you're turning there, I'd love to pray for us, knowing that God speaks to his church. You came here, and you might not even know this, but God has intended this morning to speak to you. And he's going to speak to you. He's going to speak to you through his word by the power of the Holy Spirit. Often, a great work of the Holy Spirit is to clear the passages in our ears and our hearts and our spirits and our minds to receive from him. So I'm going to pray that that would happen today and we'll get into the word of God. Amen. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we open up your word right now in hopes that your word would open up our hearts. We look deeply into the things that you have said, trusting and believing that what you have said Look deeply into our hearts as the psalmist declared, examine me, O Lord, and see if there's any wayward way in me, and show me the path of everlasting life. God, it is so sweet to come into the presence of God with like-minded brothers and sisters to gather together, not just as we are able to do on our own or with our families or with our friends or by ourselves throughout the week, but in a special way for a couple of hours with the saints to gather together in this building and to remind ourselves we're not alone and it's not about us even. Gathering together in the presence of the living God to remember that you died, you conquered death, but you rose again. You made a show openly of of the devil and his demons and to loudly proclaim that God's kingdom has been made presently available to people who don't deserve it. And God, may we be the first ones today 
rushing in to your open arms to receive grace and mercy in our time of need. Lord, would you shape us today by your word? This word that the prophet Jeremiah described as a hammer that shatters the rock. May it shatter all the rocks and the stones and cement and the buildup that has been blocking us from receiving and hearing from you. Would your word shatter it and like a sword pierce the deepest, darkest, most secret parts of who we are. Reveal yourself to us, God. Reveal your goodness. Reveal your mercy. Reveal your holiness. Reveal all about you that is lovely and perfect. And I pray that as a result, your church would worship you and chase you and follow you for the rest of our days. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read 1 Samuel 24, and I'm going to read the whole chapter. So it's about 22 verses. Ready? Uh, it was a rhetorical question, I just, but thank you. <laughs> I like it. I like, I, like the res- I like the interaction. All right. Author Samuel reciting t- uh, about 20 plus verses. I'm just going to read the whole thing because it's a story, so let it soak it up and let it fall all over you as the word of the Lord says this. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of that cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall be good to you. And David arose and he stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing as he is the Lord's anointed. And so David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and he left the cave Then he went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the King! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why? Why do you listen to the words of these men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in that cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. And see, my father, see, the corner of your robe is in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you. Though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the Proverbs of the ancient says, Out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom is the king of Israel come out anyway? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, 
Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and he wept and he said to David, you are more righteous than I am for you have repaid me good whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Just swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. And Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the word of the Lord. In the year 1502, a church in Italy hired a craftsman to sculpt a giant mass of rock that was given to them uh, to, to put into a, a work of art. It was a commission. After commencing this task, this professional sculptor ended up breaking a hole in the bottom of the piece, uh, this incredible piece of marble, and essentially bringing it to ruin. The church, assuming that it was beyond repair, covered it up and stored it for over 20 years until a certain man came across this rumor wanted to have a look for himself. He asked to see the, this giant chunk of rock, looked at it, heard the story, and took up the challenge, declaring that he could make it work. After they commissioned this man to have a go at it, and after some time, he began sculpting and shaping what was once thought lost and broken into one of the greatest statues the world has ever seen. The statue was of King David. The sculptor was, of course, Michelangelo. The story is so intriguing to me because in so many ways it mirrors the actual story of King David. We know at this point, if you've been here for the, next, uh, the last few weeks or if this, you're just visiting, catch you up in a quick summary, we know that God has chosen David to be the king of ancient Israel. In the meantime... Saul, who is king, the first king that has been chosen by God, has been rejected by God as king because Saul has rejected God as his king. And yet Saul's identity is bound up not in God's word, but in his throne, in his power, in his position, in his status. And as a result of that, he will have no rival, not even David. And we see this coming out of his jealousy and his anger and his bitterness as he makes David What was once his uh, first right-hand man, he makes him his public enemy number one and is now chasing him and his men who number in the hundreds with an army of thousands going all over the land of Israel into caves and into the wilderness looking for this one human being. Government funds and government manpower being used for one man's paranoid purposes. You gotta put yourself just in the in the shoes of David right now, having heard all of these promises of God since he was a little kid, and they're not coming to pass yet. This period of his life seems to be like that statue at one point for twenty years plus, hidden, shrouded, lost, broken, confusing. Not the way we thought it was supposed to be. I can almost imagine David 
in the caves of En Gedi asking him, him this, uh, this question of himself. Perhaps you've asked it of yourself at times in your own life, but why can't everything just be easier? Your job, your family, a choice you've got to make, following Jesus, it almost doesn't matter. Everything in life, why can't things just be a little easier? Maybe you're even asking this of God. God, why can't you just make my life a little bit easier? Just throw, me a, just throw me a break, okay? And yet it's in this period of uncertainty and weakness. It's in this place of darkness and confusion. It's in this place of utter insufficiency that God chooses to shape David in one of the greatest kings Israel has ever known. And he shapes him into a great king by making him first into a man of character. That's what the story's about. And I want to look at this story, this whole chapter, all 22 verses of it, in three ways, looking at character. One, the story, I think, is going to tell us a few things about character. One, what is character to begin with? Two, where does character come from in my own life? And three, why should I have it? What is character? Where does it come from? Why should I be pursuing it? Here's what I mean by what is character. When you look at this story and you ask, what is character? You don't see the words character anywhere in the chapter, but it is exuding out of the life of King David, future King David, I should say. Character, and we've talked about this through the series. We've talked about it uh, last summer. Character is simply who you are truly as shown by your habitual choices. You might have said, character is who I am when I'm doing the right thing. It is not that simple, and it is not that truncated. We can all have fits of good behavior, but be really terrible people. I can be the most terrible person that you've ever known, racked with jealousy and bitterness and hatred and vengeance. I can be a cutthroat, but I can show up at church and put on my best face for you. Character is something far different than who we are in the moment. Character is who you truly are, as shown by your habitual choices. It is the evidence of who you are as shown by what you constantly do, the choices you're always making. Character is something you have, whether it's good character or bad character. And so we use the term virtue to refer to good character. Virtue is when those choices you always make are wise. But make no mistake, you are a person of character. What kind of character? In other words, character is who you are when no one's looking because you're hiding in a cave. Character is who you are in the darkness, in the shadows. I think most of us in this room, because probably because we're in this room, would be apt to say pretty quickly that if we had the opportunity or if an opportunity were facing us to do something wrong, whatever it is, cheat on our spouse, uh, steal a million dollars, we likely would not do it. But if you were to examine your motives for not doing the wrong thing, what would it be? And would that change if you knew that you would never get caught for doing it and that nobody would ever know? It's the test of character. We might do the right thing at the right time if there's a particular incentive for it and we get something in return. 
But if there's an easier way out than doing the right thing, would we take it? David is right there in the middle of that opportunity. David has an opportunity to get everything that he wants, also everything that God promised to him. This is God's plan to give him the kingdom of Israel. He has an opportunity to get it overnight by taking the easy route. This is a funny thing about the situation. It's not that he has an opportunity to do something really awful and vile that God wants nothing to do with. This is all in the books. This is all in the plan. It's what God has called him to eventually be. He called and promised David, you will be king of Israel. Not only that, but it's all been just written in the clouds. Saul has been rejected by king. This guy's washed up. He doesn't obey God. He's toast. It's only a matter of time. To make it even worse, not only is Saul rejected by God, not only is David chosen by God to be king, but everybody gets it and they love David. Saul has slain his thousands, but David is ten thousands. He's got an entire entourage following saying, yes, we can't wait until you're leading us, David. You're such a good king. To make matters worse, Saul is losing his mind. He's not retiring with grace. He's throwing spears. He's being grumpy. He's jealous. He's, you know, trying to kill you and all of that stuff. And he's taking thousands of people chasing David all over the the wilderness of the promised land. All of a sudden, David looks out the cave and sees Saul walking into the cave where he is to take a nap. It's almost as if we call this an open door, you know? It's almost as if God has given him an open door. Have you ever come to a point in your life where you're like, this could be God or the devil? Like the line is so blurry. This could be an open door or like a, or, or like a really bad sin. This could be the providence of God or a temptation from the devil. You know, you walk, uh, perhaps you coming a, a on the deadline for the rent for your apartment or house and you're like $50 short and you've been praying all week. Lord, I just need $50. Just give me $50, Lord. I'm trusting in you. I believe in you. I'm uh, uh, putting my faith and trust in you. I know that you will provide. You're quoting scriptures. $50, Lord. I know that it's happening. A day's pass and it's tomorrow. The deadline is due. You walk out of the grocery store and lo and behold, two 20s and a 10 are right there on the ground before you. $50, Lord. The problem is they're all tucked into a leather wallet with ID in it. You're like, well, Lord, what are you saying? I just just wish I knew your will. And you're looking through the Bible. You're just flipping as we often do. Like, God, just speak to me. I'm just going to open up the Bible and wherever the page lands, that's what I'm going to do. Do not steal. I'm just going to read the Psalms. You know, it's more poetic. There are those points in life where the line is blurry. Life isn't always black and white. Is this providence or is this a temptation? And for David, I imagine he was struggling with this. The only problem was cash was wrapped up in a leather wallet. In order to get what he wanted, he he would have to do something that would turn him into Saul. The guy who's been flinging spears at him this whole time, David, in order to get what he wanted the easy way, would have to fling a spear of his own. He would have to stoop to the level of Saul. To get the easy way, he would have to lose a piece of himself. 
He would have to take God's plan into his own hands instead of trusting God. And this is always what it starts out as. You want to know whether it's providence or a temptation? Look and see at your own, just growing in self-awareness, check your own motives and see. Am I leaning more on myself in this than God? It almost always includes some element of that. What's this look like for us? There's the obvious ways. You know, you're looking for a raise. Uh, you're believing God for a little bit more money and it's not coming, but you believe that he's going to provide and all of a sudden you have this opportunity to skim a little bit of money off the top of something. It's kind of illegal, but not really. Nobody's going to miss it. What do you do? Is this God or is this, an op- you know, or is this a temptation? Well, it's a temptation. You have an opportunity to steal. You have an opportunity to cheat or to lie. Maybe it's a little white lie, but it'll do so much for your career. But you have to lose a piece of yourself. That piece of yourself that God has been conforming into his image. And you're weighing that. Of course, those are some of the obvious ones, but there's also some subtle ones. Every time that we lose control, maybe it's anger, but sinful anger, where we lose control, Every time we gossip, every time we plunge into bitterness and resentment, we are in some way or another saying, I don't trust you, God, to take care of my needs or to take care of my situation. I am going to take things into my own hands. Maybe your reputation is on the line. And whereas we are called, as the psalmist say over and over, to let God be our defender and to not take vengeance into our own hands, maybe we won't outright slash that person's tires, but maybe we just spread a little, a little tidbit of false information to kind of just put them down a little bit. No matter which way you slice it, it's us not or failing to trust God's will in every situation and to take control of the situation for ourselves. And so when David refuses to kill Saul, it is arguably more revealing of the kind of man he is becoming than any great victory or great visible act that has come before it. I would argue greater than his, uh, uh, his uh, killing of Goliath in uh, the Valley of Elah. This is where no one's looking. And where if he were to do it, he would simply get praise and recognition and where he's actually battling doing the right thing. It's in this place that you see his character when there's nothing to lose. David's motivation here is not his own self-preservation. It's not for his power. It's not for his glory. It's a, mere, it's, it's a complete uh, turnaround from what we see in Saul. He is driven by God's purpose. We can wax theological all day long, lifting our hands, praying and thanking God and reading scripture together, but at the end of the day, what are we motivated by? Are we more motivated by God's purpose in our life, even at the cost of our own reputation? Would you obey God even if it cost you dearly? That's the test of character. Who are you in the shadows? That's what 1 Samuel 24 tells us a little bit about what character is, but where does it come from? Character often starts by spending time in the cave. Character comes from caves. (laughs) Saul just 
rode up on the cave, but David's actually been there for quite some time. Skip back just a few verses. Uh, we're in chapter 24. Look at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 23 at that last verse, verse 29. David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. He's been living here. He's been here for a long time. We don't know how long he's been there, but we know he's been there long enough for some self-reflection, for some prayer, for times of prayer. We know he's been there long enough to write a few songs and to worship God. Why? Because some of his psalms were written in the cave of En Gedi. One that comes to mind is Psalm uh, 57. I'm just going to turn there real quick. Look at how this starts. He wrote this in the cave where he's about to, or he's thinking about murdering Saul. He writes, long before this uh, episode with Saul transpires, he writes, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. Just put yourself in the feet of, uh, of David right now, who is on the verge of losing everything. None of his plans are transpiring. He thinks he heard from God. You, you ever in that place where you're like, I heard from God a year ago, but none of it is happening. Have I heard wrong? Or did I mess it up? Or have I disqualified myself? Better believe he must be struggling with all of that stuff. And in the cave, long before Saul ever steps foot in it, he is pouring out his heart in self-reflection and in worship and in utter prayer before God. In you, my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. And over and over in the middle of the shadows, in the cave, David is before God broken and beaten, but pouring out his heart before the Lord. Character often starts by spending time in caves. The cave is simply representative of wherever you happen to be in life, where you happen to find yourself stripped of any feeling of self-sufficiency. It is that place of utter brokenness. It's where you feel broken and hurting and confused and alone. It's where you feel so at the end of yourself that you have no other choice but to rely on the Holy Spirit or fall apart completely. I hate caves. Too many Lord of the Ring movies, you know what I mean? <laughs> he caves. But the cave is where you are brought out of your comfort zone. This isn't where David wanted to be. He wanted to be on a throne surrounded by thousands who are chanting his name with a spear in his hand and the allegiance of all the people. Instead, he's in a cave running for his life from the person who should have been his biggest ally. It's out of his comfort zone. Perhaps you are too. It's that place where you find yourself stretched beyond your capacity so that you must either rely on God's spirit or begin to fall apart. And it's in the cave where God begins to shape you as he shaped David by the power of his Holy Spirit. Not to say that it doesn't happen outside of caves. Not to say that it doesn't happen when things are going well, when, things, when you're affluent, when you're comfortable, when things are going right. But in a very special way, God has the ability to turn broken statues into beautiful works of art. It often happens in those low-hanging places of suffering. 
see from David's life four ways that the Spirit begins to work on us when that season of being in a cave. One is the Spirit speaks. Look at what happens in verse four and in verse five. It says, the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you. Imagine David just surrounded by his friends, just his buddies growing up. He's like, they're looking at him. They're like, do you believe this? Saul is just sitting right there. Let's go take him out right now. And they're telling him, behold, this is, this is the Lord. They're even claiming an act of God. God did this. God brought him into your hands. This is the moment you have always been waiting for. And then David, just in the moment, just his friends egging him on, perhaps all of this emotion just rising to the top, he arose and it says he stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. This is one, it wasn't just some childhood prank, cutting a piece of someone's clothes off. In ancient Israel, the hem of your garment spoke of your identity. It was, it was uh, to cut uh, the hem of, or to mess with someone's garment, specifically their hem, was to make a jab at that person. And so for a royal, like a royal person, like a king, to cut off the hem of their garment was a jab at their royal identity. It was David, make no mistake, staking his claim to the kingdom. So it wasn't just some impulsive move, like I'm going to mess up your garments today and you're just going to have to walk out with a torn jacket. Just take that, Saul. <laughs> David was making a statement. He was just for a moment walking in the flesh. He was making a claim, staking his claim to the kingdom by cutting Saul's robe. That would have been something that would have just... just Silent means of getting a lot of words across. It would be like if you, you owned like a mom and pop shop in the middle of Carpinteria, you know, it only sold bow ties. You know, you had hundreds or maybe a thousand bow ties and that's all you did. You just had bow ties, that's all you sold, but that's how you paid your rent, that's how you put food on the table, that's how you did everything, you and your spouse, you just sold bow ties in the middle of small town Carpinteria. And then all of a sudden, there's this giant Walmart superstore moves in, and where do they move in? Right across the street from your bow tie shop. And they sell everything. They sell oil changes and they have uh, clothing and they have food in a grocery store and you can get your, your uh, car uh, worked on on aisle 57 and there's a miniature golf course upstairs. And to make matters worse, they have a sale on their opening day. We sell bow ties too. Not thousands. Mom and pop shop has thousands, but we have tens of thousands. This is kind of the feeling that Saul might have received from David. Because David's not the underdog anymore. David has everything that Saul wished he had. He has the promises of God. He has the presence of God. He has the power of God. He has all of God's people behind him. And he has just moments before all of this will take place. Saul, meanwhile, is going crazy. David was making a statement, and it says right after that, which we also tend to do too, every time we make jabs at people, well, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna fight for my way, but I'm gonna slip in a couple words of encouragement to just mess with you. It says afterwards, David's heart struck him. That word, that phrase, speaking of his heart being struck, means that the Holy Spirit was right now convicting him, saying that was the wrong move. There will be moments in the cave and outside of the cave where you do something and the Spirit of God will convict you. The Spirit speaks. 
And we have all sorts of words to describe what that is, like we don't have peace about it, or we feel bad, or guilty, or we feel convicted, whatever the word is that you choose to use. Uh, My conscience is speaking, it is the Holy Spirit moving in your life, saying that was the wrong move. How do I know if this is providence, or if this is temptation? I don't even know, it's just an enigma. The Holy Spirit moves in and begins to strike your heart. Are you listening when he does that? You know, Paul gives us the impression in Timothy that there can come a point where you ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit enough to where you, seal, you sear your own conscience. That still small voice where God is speaking to you in little moments in life about this and that, leading you, conforming you little by little into the uh, image of Christ. There, are, there can be a time or a possibility where you ignore that still small voice enough to where you lose sight of it completely. It becomes a foreign voice, or you stop hearing it at all. It becomes seared. Are you listening to the Spirit of God speak and convict you? Second thing that the Spirit does in the cave is he restrains. He doesn't just speak to you, but he actually holds you back. I don't mean he forces you to not do the thing that you wanted to do. I'm saying you, in the flesh, decide to walk in the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit. Verse 6 David said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. In other words, that conviction moves into something else, where your flesh begins to be overruled by the fruit of the Spirit. You begin to resist, successfully resist the flesh. I'm not going to yield to my flesh. I'm not under slavery to the things of, uh, of the flesh, to my sinful nature. I belong to Christ. I'm going to walk in this convicting power of the Holy Spirit. In David's case, revenge, which he almost certainly wanted to take into his own hands, is overruled by self-control. The third thing that the Spirit does is he begins to work. He convicts, then he restrains you, but then he works in you something else. Look at verse 8. Afterwards, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the King! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. In other words, conviction always moves to action. If you're spending the rest of your days listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit saying, Oh, I feel so convicted. Okay, thanks. I'll write that down. (laughs) And then you keep doing the thing that you were doing before. You've missed sight of that, the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Conviction always moves to action. David is moved to act in a way that is contrary to his men's wishes and even to his own original desire. And he makes this bold, risky move in verse 8 where he comes out of the cave and he approaches Saul. He didn't have to do that. He could have hid. Being fearful of conflict, avoiding conflict, stayed in the cave, but the Spirit of God began to work in him something else. This could mean the end for David. Same thing that happened to Queen Esther. She could have shut her mouth and just been the queen. And in that moment, in that palace with this crazy king that could have killed her on the spot, she said, she, uh, before that point, she says to her uncle Mordecai, I have to do this. I have to speak up. There's something provoking me to do this. And if I perish, I perish, but I must stick up for my people. David here is doing the same thing. Character involves learning to act upon the leading of the Spirit. There's always a change in behavior when the Spirit leads. 
It has been said that a great measure of your nearness to God is the length of time between conviction and repentance. Look at Saul. He's not short of saying he's sorry, is he? He said it a few times up until this point. He just said it to David. Saul's conviction seems to be largely uh, religiously emotional. There's almost never any repentance in Saul's life. Far different picture from what we see in David. And lastly, not only does his spirit uh, speak, restrain, work, but he also transforms you. Verse 11, David says, See my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. I could have killed you, but I didn't. Notice the first word. This is his mortal enemy now. He walks up to his mortal enemy and refers to him in the most respectful term, father. He speaks to him like a son. He works hard for reconciliation. He's not just working for indifference. That would have been enough. He's working to reconcile with King Saul. Let's make this work. In other words, action, the action that comes from conviction always ends up married to a deep-seated affection. Meaning God doesn't just want to turn you into a robot who just does the things that he wants even though you hate it. And it might start that way. God might be convicting you about something that you're doing that you just, you just want to do. <laughs> you don't want to do it. Like God, I see what you say in your word, but I want to do the opposite thing. This is really hard for me. The promise in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah was that there would come a time where the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all flesh and one of the results of that outpouring would be not just the law being uh, drilled into our minds but drilled into our hearts. Our hearts of flesh would now be able to respond to the things of God not as an outward requirement that we hate but something that our hearts actually delight in. So we're not just empowered to do the right thing, we're transformed to actually love the right thing. This is transformation inside and out. Even David's desires are being changed, not just his behavior. And in the caves of life, God is transforming the whole person, mind, body, soul, even your deepest desires. Because ultimately, the work of the Holy Spirit is to conform you and me into the image of Jesus Christ. That's why at the end of all of this, Paul, uh, excuse me, not Paul, David looks at Saul and he says in verse 12 and in verse 15 to reiterate the point, may the Lord judge between the two of us. What is he saying? He's saying, I know God's plans. I know how this is supposed to work out. I know you've been rejected as king and I've been approved as king, but it's the Lord's to put into place. I will not touch his plans. I trust him him to make it work however it plays out. I will not put my finger against you. This is a picture of David giving over control of his entire life to God and in the cave David is being shaped by the spirit. He was being shaped by the spirit long before Saul got there. The cave is that place where you're stripped of any feeling of sufficiency and you must rely on God's spirit. And it's not just David, but many men and women throughout the Bible, have you noticed, have been shaped by some form of a cave. For Abraham, it was Mount Moriah. For Jacob, it was in the plains running from his angry brother Esau. For Joseph, it was a prison. For Moses, it was Midian. For Ruth, it was being a powerless widow in a foreign land. For Nehemiah, it was the Babylonian exile. 
For Esther, it was the palace in a, with a narcissistic, capricious, misogynistic king. For Job, it was, you know, death, loss, and the accusations of his best friends. For Hosea, it was a cheating spouse. For Jonah, it was the short-lived shade of a small plant. For Jesus, it was 40 days in the wilderness with the devil. For Paul, it was three years in Arabia. For David, it was an actual cave. What is it for you? Where are you being tested and stretched? Many of us know only the victories of these powerful men and women of God. But what the Bible would lead us to believe is that those victories were made possible because those individuals had already been crushed and laid bare before God in their own cave. See, being conformed into the image of God is not some overnight experience. You can't just look on a website for the nearest worship night Go over there on a Friday night and be changed overnight for the rest of the weekend. Can't go up to Green Valley Lake or uh, Lake Arrowhead or some, uh, uh, some weekend uh, camp with a church and hope to be radically transformed inside and out in your character in a moment. Certainly wasn't with David. Psalm 57, in my soul. In you, my soul takes refuge. He had already been spending time with the Lord in the cave being crushed and pressed. In fact, he had been doing that since he was a kid. He has been practicing to trust in God, hiding in the cave, tending sheep, playing his harp, running around with Jonathan, killing giants in the palace with Saul, dodging spears, you name it. God has been pressing him to get him to this point. In other words, character was a muscle of the soul that David had been working out his entire life so that when he needed to wield it, he didn't have to think about where it was or what he needed to do. It was simply automatic. That's how character works. Gene uh, Edwards, in his book, A Tale of Three Kings, put it this way. He said, there in the caves, drowned in the sorrow of his song and in the song of his sorrow, David became the greatest hymn writer and greatest comforter of broken hearts this world shall ever know. That's how character works. It's not an overnight sensation. It is something that is built and cultivated through times of pain and suffering. And so you can't say, I hope that when that time comes, I'll do great. Rather, it's making a thousand small conscious choices of greatness when it doesn't always seem to matter. So that when the time of testing does arrive, greatness for you will be second nature. When the time of pressing comes, it will just flood out of you as someone pushes you. That's what comes out. Because who are you? But the way that you automatically respond in the shadows. Following Christ involves daily choosing character over convenience. And it must be crafted and cultivated in the shadows of life. And sometimes that carving hurts, doesn't it? But when we're fully mature... Even our enemies are able to say of us, like Saul, you are more righteous than I was. Even when they hate us, they're able to respect us. As Paul would say to Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. In other words, God is able to get you to a certain point not through your charisma or talents or gifts on the spot, 
but through character and integrity by how he has dealt with you over the long period in the caves so that even though your enemies hate you and are jealous of you and want to tear you down, they will respect you and see something in you that's different. That was Saul's perception of David. You may say, well, this is great, but it sounds awful. I love your stories about character, and I'm really glad about David and everybody else in the Bible, but I've got things to do, and to tell you the truth, I want to skip the character and just jump to the transformation. So where's the verse in the Bible that says that? (laughs) How do I skip the character uh, development and jump straight into the transformed person? Listen, character itself is the reward. Because character is God's transforming work in you. Every moment, you might be looking into the future saying, I wish, or, or into the present saying, I wish I was this incredible, awesome person. But can you, by the power of the Spirit and by the grace of God, look at where you were a year ago and say, wow, this is awesome. I am less prone to anger than I was a year ago. I used to throw the microwave across the, you know, the living room when I got angry, but now I just you know, kick chairs, <laughs> whatever. I used to like really let people have it just when I was driving down Milpa Street, but now I just like give them the stare down. I'm growing. (laughs) Hey man, don't sweat the small stuff. It's through those small conscious acts of obedience that God is changing you into the person who won't throw anything across the living room. It's through those small acts of conscious obedience that God is turning you into the person that he had in his mind, when he created you. Saul wanted power and position, but David wanted God's will and his purpose. And David's friends are having a difficult time trying to wrap their heads around that with this missed opportunity. Now the word in verse 7 is persuaded. David persuaded his friends to not kill Saul, but the actual Hebrew word there is literally he tore them apart. Leading some commentators to believe that he, he had to resort to violent, maybe violent threats. Like they were really wanting to take advantage of this opportunity. They perhaps thought he was stupid. This is an incredible, once in a lifetime opportunity. David, why are you doing this? And it seems that David understood something they didn't from years of spending time in Saul's own palace. Dangerous is the request for God's power without God's purpose. Our culture is riddled with scandals of legitimately good people, talented people, powerful people, People with great dreams and great plans with a lot of power and position to do great things and yet lacking in character. And who could blame them? Our culture elevates the development of all of those things. Get gifts and get position and get leadership and grow in this and go to that conference and go to this one. Rarely do we hear that stress placed on the inner man, on character. I don't see a lot of Malcolm Gladwell books on self-denial. I don't see Seth Godin blogs on how to suffer well through life. I haven't seen a book by Dale Carnegie on how to lose all your friends, drive away influence, and still maintain your identity. That stuff isn't out there because it doesn't sell. Our culture wants power. 
And in a world of talents and uh, status and giftings and position, which are all important in the middle of the kingdom of God, character is our currency. Character is like credit. It takes a long time to build. It is the most important thing that you have and you can lose it in one minute of bad choices. Which is why God is sometimes so brutal with us in the cave. It's because he loves you. It feels brutal. And while his friends are saying to David, why on earth would you not take this chance? David is in a sense saying, because I don't want to become the very thing that turned on me in that palace. I will not turn into that which is trying to kill me. And all of this starts with character. You see, by David refusing to cut Saul, God was cutting the Saul out of David. And it would take many more years. This wasn't like a single experience. He'd have to go through this with Bathsheba and his son Absalom and being rejected from building the temple like he always wanted to, but at the end of his life, despite all of his mistakes, adultery, murder, God would still say of David, this was a man after my own heart. See, the Bible isn't filled with perfect people who have always done right. It's filled with messed up people who have always done wrong. The thing that sets David apart from everybody else is that in the middle of his mistakes, he kept turning to God. You may be hearing this Maybe discouraged at all of it because you failed miserably. See that in David, he's a man of character. You might be looking at people around you going, these people look like they're you know, full of character and I just feel so bad because I've sinned so many times and I've severed relationships. Perhaps you've made a mess of your life. You faked it. Maybe you want to be good at looking good, but you know that inside you're sick in the soul and in the spirit. Maybe you're lacking that inner quality of God's life. Maybe your character is wanting Maybe this is the first time you're hearing about any of this stuff. Maybe you've been so shaped by your past, lots of spears. The Saul's in life have been throwing spears at you and perhaps you've resorted to throwing spears at other people and you say, I've, I've been so hurt by my past. And our past has an ability to deeply shape us but it does not have to define who you are. And we know that because later a better version of David comes on the scene. And I should say David was a better version of this king. But Jesus comes in on the scene as a king who has an opportunity to wrap up his kingdom. He takes a different route and he doesn't treat us rebels the way that our sins deserve. And just as David would have been easily vindicated by cutting corners, killing Saul for his mistakes, defending himself, and yet refuses to do it. So Jesus would be righteous in cutting us off for our sins as well. And yet Jesus, like David, refuses to cut corners. He returns our evil with good and mercy. And yet he's also way better than David ever was. Because instead of cutting us, he himself puts himself under the blade. He himself is cut for our sins on the cross. And when we put our faith and trust in this better king, he enters into our life, he invades our space, and he begins to sculpt and shape people who were once thought lost and broken into great works of art. The beauty of King David is not in the sculpture was in the greatness of the sculptor. And you may tend to think this morning that it's only the good times in your life that God is moving. 
It's only when worship is awesome and life is going great and I'm surrounded with community and my uh, car isn't dying and there's money in my account and the bills are paid and my kids are happy and all of that stuff. God is really moving. None of us ever say like, what? <laughs> none of us ever say like, the church shut down and my friends all left me and I quit my job. God is really moving in my life right now. But he is. He may not be the author of those bad things, but the Bible seems to heavily suggest that it's in the caves that God moves so much. It's in the times where we feel the most alone, the most broken, the most empty, the most weak that God is present with us trying to teach us something. What is he teaching you? What is your cave? You know what it is. I want you this morning to stop for a moment and ask yourself, God, what are you doing with me? How are you shaping me in this? And to ask yourself, do I really trust the sculptor? Saul would look at David's mercy that he didn't deserve and as a result of it say, David, you, I can see that you truly are king. A better David, Jesus would come across and show us more mercy than David ever would that we might look at him and say, you truly are my king. Is that what you have said to him? Do you trust the king as he sculpts? Heavenly Father, as we worship together through music and through song, I pray just for my brothers and sisters today who are in the middle of that season in life. They can't see the light in the darkness. They can't see which corner to turn. They don't know whether the opportunity before them is a temptation or providence. Maybe they're even on the verge of doubting that you are good. And I just pray, God, that as we sing tonight, that you, uh, this morning, that you would reveal yourself in a special way for that person. That you would cover them in your mercy and in your love and in your goodness and in your benevolence. And that you would open up their eyes to see that even in the middle of the most difficult situation, you are there and your heart is for them. Just really believe that there's people in this room this morning that just need to be persuaded and convinced by the Holy Spirit that God is for you and that he actually is a good father. He's good towards you. And it doesn't always seem like that because of the master's hand just chipping away at that block of marble. Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. We wouldn't do it the same way, but we must trust that he's good and he knows what he's doing. Holy Spirit, would you be here today to reveal in the name of Jesus that you've got us in your hands. And may we emerge from the cave whenever that is, looking more like you and more in love with you than we've ever been. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.